proudly Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Guten Tag, hola, bonjour, burdrup. That's the official greeting of the world's most abundant domestic animal, chickens. Today, we're learning how to speak chicken with expert chicken translator, Melissa Coffey of the blog Tilly's Nest and the new book with the intriguing and quirky title, How to Speak Chicken. I've done lots of interviews over the years, and I guarantee you this is one that I will personally never forget. Now, you may think that studying chicken behavior and communication sounds silly or even ridiculous, But if you're raising chickens, you probably know that this kind of information is exactly the topic of many discussions and threads in chicken forums and help groups online. And once you get over the novelty of the topic, people generally discover that Melissa's information is actually useful and interesting. In fact, Feedback on Melissa's book and her presentations on the topic of how to speak chicken, where she covers how to discover the language, emotions, etiquette, and smarts of the flock show that folks want to understand their chickens better. And fortunately, Melissa's book is allowing people to connect with them. How to speak chicken. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. All right, let's kick things off. I'd like to start out by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast this week. And of course, I always say that I hope you're listening to many different gardening podcasts. This week, I discovered a new gardening podcast. It's called Bloom and Grow. You can find it on many podcast players. And I happened to catch episode 11, where Maria is interviewing Mr. Plant Geek, Michael Perry. It was very entertaining. So if you're looking for something new to check out, look for Bloom and Grow and then add it to your playlist. Of course, I'm so honored that you're spending time here listening to the Still Growing podcast. And I want to make sure that you know that you're always welcome to join the listener community for the show. It's a free private Facebook group that I host for listeners of the show. And you can find it by typing the name of our group into the search bar on Facebook. Just search for the Still Growing Podcast group and the listener community will show up at the top of the search results and Facebook, and then you can just request to join and we'll admit you into the group. You'll get access to all of the garden articles that I talk about during the Garden News Roundup. You will be eligible to win any of the listener giveaways. In fact, the winner of last week's book, The Naturalist Notebook by Nat Wheelwright, is Amy Walker Collier. So congratulations, Amy. Please private message me in the Facebook group with your email and your physical address, and we'll make sure that the book gets to you. So congratulations, Amy. The Facebook group is also a way that you can connect with guests that have been on the show, like today's guest, Melissa Coffey 
So that's a great perk to joining the group. And then finally, there's no spam. The content that I share in the community is something I work very hard to make sure is helpful and worthwhile for you. Everything I post is curated with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. Plus, it's free and easy to join. With that, let's welcome new members into the group. We got to get caught up here. I want to welcome Jennifer Pratt, Claire Broderick, Tim Elias, Robert Bonte, Pat Manis, Cindy Salas, Chris Curtis, Linda Ryder Mystic, Troy Alexander Golden, Elizabeth Gregory, and Angelica Eisenhower. Welcome, you guys. Just a reminder, if you ever need to contact the show with any questions or suggestions, there's a phone number for the show. You can always call 865-333-GROW or 865-333-4769. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group, and it's made up of a dozen different segments. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay pretty informed of the news in horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it in the listener community in the still growing podcast group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. Well, let's start out with the guest update. Past guest Kylie Baumley wrote that great book on how to save the monarch that's back in episode 589. Well, she also writes on her blog called OurLittleAcre.com, and she shared a very interesting post recently, and it happened to be about Sue Grafton. Sue Grafton is the author, the mystery writer that recently passed away, and Kylie wrote a post about her because she had a chance to visit her home, visit Sue in in her home and tour her garden. Turns out Sue Grafton was a master gardener. She was a great gardener. She loved helping others learn about gardening. And so Kylie wrote a very nice post about visiting Sue Grafton's home and getting to know her a little bit. So if you get a chance, check that out. I thought it was very nicely done. So thanks for that, Kylie. In sustainability, the English Garden shared a great post called How to Sow Chilies for a Homegrown Crop. Chili plants, of course, are pretty easy to grow from seed. It's a great beginner plant. If you're a beginning gardener and you want to try your hand at chilies, go for it. There are so many different chilies now that you can pick from and grow from seed. So have fun scouting through the seed catalogs. And if you get a chance, head on over to Craig LaHoulier's website because he grows a lot of different chilies as well. In continuing ed, Timber Press recycled a great post that they had written about potting soil. This post was written by David Deerdorf and Catherine Wadsworth, the authors of What's Wrong With My House Plant. Now, what I liked about this post is that these guys explain what's in common potting media, and then they give suggestions on how to create your own organic alternative. They give special formulas for cactus and succulents, African violets, and orchids. So that's a great post to check out this week. 
In the how-to DIY segment, Megan Shen wrote an article for Horticulture called How to Increase Humidity for Houseplants. Now, Megan came up with five different suggestions for increasing humidity. First, fill the saucer underneath pots with pea gravel or aquarium gravel and then fill those with water. Second, make a humid microclimate by clustering houseplants together. I love doing that. Third, use cloches or glass jars to up humidity around single plants. Four, here's a great idea for repurposing, place potted plants inside an empty fish tank with or without a lid that will help hold in that humidity. And finally, keep your houseplants in a room that's naturally more humid than others, like bathrooms or like kitchens. I tell you what, the happiest and without a doubt best looking African violet that I own is right by my kitchen sink. So there's that natural humidity helping out that African violet. In the plant spotlight this week, there was a clever post that featured garden design inspiration from Shakespeare's The Winter Tale. And it made the plant spotlight because it features many of the plants that were featured in The Winter Tale, such as rue and rosemary, just to name a few. So if you get a chance to check that post out and you like Shakespeare, you're a literary geek, you will love that post. You could even recreate your own Winter's Tale Garden. That would be a fun project for 2018. In the news this week was this incredible article about a woman who helped a butterfly with a broken wing fly for the first time. This was such a cool story. So the woman's name is Rami McCloskey. Now, several years ago, Rami lost her mom to cancer. And before her mom passed away, her mom said, whenever you see butterflies, just know it's me checking in on you to let you know I'm okay and that I love you. And since then, Rami has taken it upon herself to make sure that the world has more butterflies. And so she raises them. She brings them inside. She brings monarchs inside and helps them get to adulthood just like we talked about with author Kylie Baumley back in that episode on Monarchs in 589. Now, Kylie had told me when we were talking about raising monarchs that sometimes when butterflies emerge from their chrysalis, they can have some wing damage. And that's exactly what happened to one of these butterflies that Rami was trying to raise. This particular butterfly had upper and lower wings on one side that had just come out torn. He was otherwise healthy, but with these torn wings, he would never be able to fly, and he certainly probably wouldn't survive very long. Rami was, of course, very upset. She said, I couldn't bring myself to put him down. I figured I would keep him inside and feed him until he died. But then she got another idea. A friend of Rami's learned about the situation and sent her a guide for repairing butterfly wings. So she gathered the things that she thought she would need, a towel to put the butterfly on, a wire hanger, I'll tell you about that in a minute. Contact cement, 
a toothpick, cotton swabs, scissors, tweezers, and talcum powder. So here's what Rami did. She had kept the body of another butterfly who had not survived. And from this butterfly that had passed away, she crafted a transplant wing. So she took her patient, her butterfly with the damaged wing, and she created a loop with the wire hanger. And then she carefully used that to hold the butterfly down and keep the butterfly in position as she carefully cut away the damaged portion of his wings. Now, the article states that although this might seem like a painful procedure, it's actually not. Trimming damaged wings to make repairs is just like getting a haircut. Once Rami had removed the damaged portion of the wings, she glued pieces from the transplant wing into place with the contact cement. And then once it was secured, she put a few sprinkles of talcum powder to ensure that any unwanted stickiness around the edges would be lessened as it dried. And with that, the butterfly looked as good as new. And when you see pictures of this transplant wing on this butterfly, you can't even hardly tell the difference. It's amazing. Rami did a great job. So after this procedure, Rami let the butterfly rest for a day. She provided a meal of nectar, and then she brought the butterfly outside. And the next thing you know, he took off. He flew away. She said it was totally amazing to see him make a lap around the yard. He went and sat on a branch. She's got a picture of him up there. And then he just flew off. And as luck would have it, Rami's actually a costume designer. And I'm sure those skills were put to good use as she helped this butterfly with this transplant wing. Isn't that a great story? In the Dream Guest segment this week, House and Garden out of England shared the gardens of Arnie Maynard's home. Now, this garden is to die for. It's very romantic. It's very relaxed. And he's a very interesting gardener. He said, what I'm really excited about is actually spending time gardening. I want to build up small collections of rare and wonderful things like forgotten tulips. Anyway, it was a fun little article on Arnie Maynard's home and getting a chance to take a sneak peek at his garden. And that's why Arnie made the dream guest segment this week. In science, Q shared a glimpse into their digitization project. Of course, Q's library has these wonderfully unique and invaluable collections. And now we can all see them because they're working to digitize their archives. And of course, this is a ton of work because they not only have to image everything, they have to assign metadata to each image. So they have to give it a date, the name of the artist or the author, and then they have to title it. It's very laborious, but it's important that they get it right while they're doing it. It was a kick to learn about some of the things that they're working to digitize and then hear a little bit, get a sneak peek behind the scenes about their whole process. Just fascinating. In inspiration this week, there was a wedding that featured terracotta and rose gold and gray. 
And I thought this color combination was so fantastic. It can be used as a theme for any garden party in your 2018 garden. This post was from the blog Ruffled. And once you get started over there, you'll never leave. There's hours and hours of inspiration there. Lots of different flower combinations and tons of ideas and inspiration to be gained from just spending some time over at Ruffled. So check that out. In quotables this week, of course, all of the quotables that I picked had to do with chickens. So let's get started. Here, the first one is from Dolly Parton's character in the movie Nine to Five. She said, I'll change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. This next one's from Frank Lloyd Wright. Regard it as just as desirable to build a chicken house as to build a cathedral. Here's a Japanese proverb about chickens. It's better to be the head of a chicken than the rear end of an ox. This one's from Grandma Moses. If I didn't start painting, I would have raised chickens. And then finally, this one from Mark Twain that I thought Melissa might disagree with. Noise proves nothing. Often a hen who has merely laid an egg cackles as if she has laid an asteroid. I know I listened to Melissa in another interview, and she said that there is a song that the chickens sing when they've laid an egg. I can believe it because it's quite an accomplishment. So there you have it, your chicken quotables for the week. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, How to Speak Chicken, with chicken translator Melissa Coffey. People have been living with chickens for at least 6,000 years, and the worldwide domesticated chicken population now exceeds 19 billion. Despite hanging out together for as long as we have, few people have given serious consideration to the potential meaning of chicken vocalizations. Turns out, chickens are loquacious creatures, and chicken owners grow a accustomed to hearing their patterns of speech. They just never really give it a second thought. In one article I read recently, a chicken farmer found his chicken house oddly quiet one morning, a time which is pretty chatty and noisy for chickens. Instead, the birds were murmuring and lethargic. He soon discovered that his lighting system had failed and the lights had not switched off the night before. So the chickens hadn't gotten much sleep. They were sleep deprived from their all nighter. Now, if the farmer had been able to eavesdrop on the flock, he might have known much sooner that his flock needed help. I like to call Melissa a chicken translator, something I thought would be a one-of-a-kind job, but 
as it happens, she's keeping good company. There are scientists at the University of Georgia University and the Georgia Institute of Technology that have been studying chicken language in an effort to help poultry farmers with the ability to monitor and modify lighting, temperature, ventilation, feeding systems, and health. For instance, the artificial intelligence monitors can now detect when birds are feeling heat stress on the basis of the sounds they make. It can also detect when the birds have a respiratory infection because of the sound they make when mucus clogs their airways. In addition, a recent study published in the Springer's Journal of Animal Cognition shared something discovered by senior scientist Lori Marino, who reviewed the latest research about the psychology, behavior, and emotions of chickens. And she found, in general, that chicken intelligence has been majorly underestimated. Research has shown that chicken communication consists of at least 24 distinct vocalizations, as well as different visual displays. Roosters will sound distinct alarm calls for different kinds of predators. Recent findings reveal that chicken communication is very complex, and that suggests that chickens have cognitive awareness and even more sophisticated capacities, such as perspective-taking and deception. Now, Melissa's work would get a stamp of approval from Wallace Berry, a poultry scientist at Auburn University's College of Agriculture, who recently said, Some farmers tell me that despite all the gadgets, their most important piece of technology for understanding chickens is a five-gallon bucket. They turn it over and sit on it and watch the birds for hours. They learn what a normal house looks and sounds like. If the chickens are content, there's a certain way they sound. If they're cold or hot, there are certain sounds they make. This is what the researchers are trying to do in an automated way. It makes perfect sense. Melissa begins her book by sharing how you can better learn to listen to your own chickens. She suggests sitting with them quietly and watching. Just chill with your chickens until they forget about you sitting there and start chatting with each other. By watching her flock, Melissa learned their sounds. And amazingly, when she repeated those sounds, her chickens understood. One time, she repeated their aerial warning cry, which is the cry that they make when a predator is flying overhead. The chickens freaked. They stopped in their tracks. They looked up at the sky. They really thought a predator was there, thanks to Melissa's warning sound. It's kind of like in the movie Arrival, one of my favorites from last year, when Amy Adams' character figures out a way to talk to the aliens. Talk about a breakthrough. In all seriousness, though, in today's episode, you'll hear Melissa speak chicken. And can I just say that she surprised me to death when she asked me to give it a try, too. Our whole conversation had me in a constant state of fascination and amazement. So if you're a chicken geek looking to understand your chickens better, 
check out Melissa's book, How to Speak Chicken. It's the perfect gift for your favorite chicken keeper. And if you have kids, don't miss Melissa's award-winning book, A Kid's Guide to Keeping Chickens. All right. I hope you're ready to have some fun to push the boundaries of what you think of when it comes to chickens. Let's learn how to speak chicken with the queen of chicken speak, the chicken translator, and by the way, a jack of many trades as you're about to discover the talented and insightful Melissa Coffey. Well, welcome to the show, Melissa Coffey. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here. I've had a number of listeners request to have a chicken expert on the show. And your book, How to Speak Chicken, definitely qualifies you as a chicken expert. How did you come up with the title for your book? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, um. You know, I think it's kind of uh, interesting, and it definitely would make people do a do a double take. Um, what is this all about? Is this a joke? Um, and uh, I guess the second thought would be, is this a crazy chicken lady? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so it, it kind of um, came about. So uh, I've been a chicken writer, blogger with gardening and bees and everything else since uh, 2010, and things have really morphed into what they are today, but I originally started writing about the chickens and um, would go on different talks, um, traveling the country, doing presentations about chickens. And my first uh, book came out in 2015, A Kid's Guide to Keeping Chickens. And I touched upon the chicken's language in that book um, because I thought it would be great for families and kids to be able to relate to what was going on in the backyard. And when I was doing those presentations, I would do a little demonstration of what it was like to interact with your chickens and understand what they were saying. And no matter where I was in the country or no matter what my audience was or the setting or the venue or the age or any of that, speaking chicken parts of my presentation were the most times when I could hear a pin drop. Really? <laughs> and I could actually feel the audience hanging and listening to what I was saying. And I thought, well, gosh, people are really interested in knowing what their chickens are saying. And so that then that delved into, with my background in uh, medicine, wanting to learn more. I always want to learn more. So communication for me is a huge part of, of my training. And I wanted to be able to better communicate with chickens. And so that got me thinking, well, you know, what are the studies out there? What has been learned about chickens? Are they really bird brains? Um, are they smart? Are they stupid? What do they know? What about their language? What is this thing called the pecking order? And how did we determine it was a pecking order? Um, and all these kinds of questions came up. So I started writing them down and I contacted Story Publishing, who was my first publisher, and said, hey, I have this really different idea for a chicken book. Will you hear me out? And they did. And so, you know, when it came time to pick the title for the book, How to Speak Chicken, we rolled around a few different ideas. But when we really got down to it, they said, you know what, you started speaking chicken. That's how it all started. So maybe that's kind of where where we have to go with the title. I love that. I have seen some promotional material for your book, and it'll say, discover the language, emotions, etiquette, and smarts of the flock. There is a lot to understand when it comes to chickens. 
Yeah, there was. And, you know, there was so much more that I wanted to include in this book that ended up, you know, on the editing floor, uh, cutting room floor, as they say, um, because there was just so much information um, about the the beauty of the chickens. And I'm just so thrilled that the publisher believed in me, believed in this book, and believed in the message that I wanted to get out to fellow backyard chicken keepers. And in some ways, I feel like they took a little bit of a chance on this title. But from just the original feedback that I'm starting to get, it's really, really heartwarming. Um, in some ways, the book was a little vulnerable for me. I had to, you know, put in different little stories and tap into my heart, my emotions. Um, in addition to providing science things, um, I wanted people to understand that I understand them. I understand their how they feel about their chickens. And, yeah, I do love chickens. Not love chickens as wanting to collect co- chicken collectibles for my kitchen, but I Love them as you would uh, any other pet you would have, a cat, a dog. Um, Yeah, kind of amazing. It is. This is a perfect segue because right away as you start the book and the preface, you have this fantastic quote from Fabian Fredrickson, and it says, the things you are passionate about are not random. They are your calling. Would you consider chickens your calling? Yeah, and I never knew it. And uh, that's kind of, I think that's kind of like the bigger life lesson sometimes is that sometimes you have to take that leap of faith into the unknown. And for us, one of the unknown things was chickens. I didn't know that keeping a flock would be so fantastic for my family, for me. And I think that when you take the time to really learn something, it it kind of does become your calling and, and you want people to celebrate the the joy of keeping chickens with you and you you appreciate other people's passions for things and so I think in some ways, you know, we have we we like to think that our lives are we have a pretty good idea of where they're gonna go and where we're gonna be. But I think if somebody told me ten years ago that I would be an author times two and a chicken wrangler and, (laughs) you know, I became a beekeeper, um, you know, master gardener and, you know, to think, wow, this is kind of where my life has gone. And, 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 you know, these, these things become our calling and sometimes we don't even realize it. That's why I'm always like the first one to tell my kids, well, go ahead and try something new. Uh, Try a new hobby, plant those seeds. And even when we're, you know, doing the garden or things like that, we always pick something new, a new crop, a new variety um, of something because we we have to try. How do you know if you like something or dislike something without trying and experiencing it on your own? That's exactly right. And I love what you say in your preface, too, because you kind of share your story about how you got into all of this. I think it's so well done. It's so well stated. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind reading just the first two paragraphs in your preface, and then let's talk about how you got into raising chickens. Sure. What started out as a journey to teach my children about sustainability and responsibility while providing our family with fresh eggs from our own backyard has turned into something magical. If you're a backyard chicken keeper like me, you absolutely love your flock. 
We spend countless hours outside with our girls and can't wait to get home from work and school to be with them. Over the years, I've tried to see my flock through both the heart of a mother and the magnifying glass of a scientist. In that time, I've developed such close bonds with my chickens that I believe I've been accepted into their fascinating world. Long before I dreamed of owning chickens, I trained as a nurse practitioner, studying sociology, anthropology, psychology, and biology. Learning about interpersonal relationships, culture, language, and societal roles in the melting pot of Los Angeles opened my eyes to the world. At the age of 20, I had no idea that my skills in understanding cultures and my respect for those who are different from me would come in handy in a chicken coop on Cape Cod. That is a fascinating story. So how did it all come together for you? You have this incredibly unique background and yeah. you begin to apply it to raising your chickens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my husband always jokes around, you know, when we're out and about and people ask, oh, what do you do? Well, <laughs> where do I begin? Um, but, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, her, she does everything. Uh, you know, she's she's kind of, uh, she she does a lot of things. And, um, you know, we always joke because when we, when we met, when we were both in graduate school, uh, he always says, oh, boy, honey, never, never, you know, when we said our dues, did I ever think for better or for worse or our life journey would include chickens? But it does. <laughs> and he said, and bees? I'm terrified of bees. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just really morphed into, you know, what we do and what we become. And I don't I don't think in, in anybody's life journey that you're ever really done learning. And I am a lifetime learner, um, and I think that we're always morphing into better versions of ourselves um, and trying to make ourselves the best that we can be. For me, it started out on that journey in, in nursing. Um, I always have been a nurturer, a caretaker, trying to fix, you know, baby animals I find in the woods as a little little girl in my very early childhood growing up in New Jersey to always trying to volunteer and, and do things that I could uh, through high school and in, in college. It, it, it's probably a whole nother other podcast, but um, essentially I had a, a near-death experience from a horrible surgery that went wrong. And um, I didn't know if I was going to make it. Nobody knew. I was hospitalized for two months and basically had to relearn how to how to live life again. I had to relearn how to walk. I had to relearn how to swallow, to sit up to function um, as a human being. And uh, at that point, I remember thinking, you know, if I make it through this, then it's going to be a miracle. I was actually, I had accepted death, which um, was something I think really hard for to realize when you're, when you're 19 years old, that it was okay um, if I didn't make it, but I did make it. And I had said to myself, I remember thinking, well, if I make it through this, then I really need to try and make the world a better place. And I know that sounds so cliche, but that was kind of my journey. And that affirmed to me, yeah, I'm going to go to nursing school and I'm going to not only go to nursing school, but try and um, excel at that and try and then teach students how to become nursing students and, and physicians how to 
have more compassion and bedside manner. And so, you know, I ended up in this whole world of academics where I was trying to not only take what I had learned, but also to share it and to try and always inspire people. You know, I took a couple years off when I had my young children. And I think what we've kind of become in our life stories and our life journeys mold us and shape us. And it's no accident where we end up. And so I think for me, definitely just having that natural curiosity, moving from Los Angeles to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and looking in people's yards and finding out what people are up to. And wow, I can really do my gardening here. Of course, I had to learn an entire new zone, but I could I could grow things. Um, oh, gosh. Well, then, oh, look at this. There's a master gardening program. I'm going to join this because I want to teach people how to garden. And that was a perfect avenue. When I found out that I could keep bees, I said, oh, I'd like to be a beekeeper. You know, the first question my husband said, aren't you afraid to be stung? I said, well, yeah, but, but I haven't been stung in 30 years. And maybe it, I, it's not as painful as it was back then. (laughs) And I remember the first time I did get stung as a beekeeper and I, I had this like strange, you know, just sensation. Okay. It's a sting. Oh, a sting. That's why they call it a bee sting. It's not like this horrible, I'm going to lose my limb kind of pain. And, but being able to help the bees and then connect with the beekeeping community and the same with chickens. Um, this is kind of just how our lives evolved in I really also wanted to teach my children as much as I could outside of school, outside of all of these electronics these days. And, you know, we do a lot of things now because the kids show some interest and we explore them. Some things we stay with and some things we don't, but we try and we try and see what things are about. For for us, um, it's been really a magical experience with keeping these chickens. You remind me of my conversation with Marta McDowell, who who wrote All the President's Gardens and this fabulous book about Beatrix Potter, and also uh, recently wrote about the world of Laura Ingalls Wilder through, you know, the eyes of, you know, basically she was a naturalist. And when I talked to Marta, Marta had this whole other life before she became a garden author. And she often says, no experience is ever wasted. Wasted. And so yeah. when I think about your journey to become a nurse practitioner, even your near-death experience, I think all of that has, you know, served you and helped you along the way. And yeah. so here you are and you are a, a chicken translator. And it says <laughs> your, your number, your chapter one starts out literally saying chicken translator at your service. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that I thought was so cool is you start out right at the very beginning talking about mother chickens these hens that yes. at the very beginning as their eggs are laid as they're taking care of these eggs and getting ready for the mm-hmm. arrival of the chicks you mm-hmm. say that while chicks are still nestled in their eggs the broody mother talks to them and in, probably in the same way, you know, we talk to our babies as we're waiting That's for right. them to be born. But tell us a little bit about this, because there are going to be some people listening right now going, whoa, wait a minute. Mother chickens right. are talking to their chicks while they're still inside the egg. Right. So, you know, this is the thing that this is. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that that made you excited because this is the stuff that gets me excited is that um, 
for so many people who tell us, oh, we're so different than chickens, we're so different than this animal, that animal, we're so much better, we're so superior. It turns out in life we do a lot of the same things that our um, animals that we cohabitate the earth with do. And the sense of, of being a mother, the pride of being a mother, the joys, the happiness, the patience, it's all there. And it's all there in chickens. And it starts out, these chickens have to go broody, which means they want to become a mother. And most of the time, it starts in the spring. And they uh, will lay a clutch of eggs. And they will sit on those eggs dedicated to them for 21 days, only coming off the nest once in 24 hours, really, to go to the bathroom and eat and drink. And they first put the eggs against their, their chest and they remove all the feathers from their chest to help build the nest, but also they put the eggs on the skin of the chest to assume the proper humidity for hatching. And the mother hens will rotate all the eggs in the nest, making sure that every egg is developing to the best of its natural ability um, and giving it the best chance it can. But what happens is prior to hatching, you'll hear a little bit of a, a peeping sound. And it's like a peep from inside an eggshell and it's muffled and it's quiet. But that's what gets the mom really going, almost coaching her babies. Um, and she hears this and she'll answer back to them. And this chick is communicating information on how it's doing. Um, it also tells her how many of her eggs are actually viable and, and have a good chance of hatching out. And so that's so amazing. And, and so, you know, I say in the book, like a, like a cheerleader, the mother's still the first cheerleader, this mother hen, and she's coaxing them to, to hatch and she's watching them and, and with excitement and anticipation and, and all the things that we experience when we're, we're having children of our own. Well, isn't that fascinating? What kind of reaction do you get from people when you bring this up, when you say, hey, this is going on, this actually happens? Yeah, that's, that's the whole thing. People are like, really? Tell me more. <laughs> and um, because I think in some ways, as a society, we, we have been taught, and shame on us, that we didn't try to find out for ourselves. And this is one of the reasons why I'm always telling my kids to find out for yourselves, experience things. I can't believe that chickens have personalities and chickens will make you an honorary member of their flock. And it was these sorts of things where I was finding these things out for myself and science was backing me up with what I was finding because I you know, was able to go into some of the literature that's available out there and the research that's been done on chickens and find out that, wow, I'm not crazy. This has actually been documented uh, and tucked away in some highly scientific journal that most people probably would fall asleep after the second paragraph. But because of my training, I don't fall asleep. I read the, you know, 30, 40, 50 page studies to figure out, wow, what did they actually determine? <laughs> yeah. um, and I and I find that fascinating. And then, you know, coming from medicine, I'm able to decipher and interpret and uh, take that 
so such scientific language and break it down into digestible bits and pieces that, that people can understand. And I think that's kind of a blessing for me that I've been able to do that. But mostly, um, this is what chicken keepers have been asking for. They want to know more about their flock. They want to learn more. They want to be the best chicken keepers that they can be. And I'm hoping that this book can, can help guide them to do so. And I'm hoping that this book also has the ability to reach non-chicken keepers, just animal lovers in general, and make you think twice about the natural world around you. Well, absolutely. Backyard chickens are more popular than ever. And Mm -hmm. yet there just seems to be no end to the quest for more information about how to be a better chicken keeper. Yeah, kind of amazing. You have this two-page spread that's dedicated to brooder vocabulary primer. And you talk about the the different sounds that you'll hear from baby chicks. And I have two questions here about this. The first Mm -hmm. is, if you think about baby chicks maybe as a gateway into understanding language in the same way, Mm -hmm. you know, you look at human children and just as Mm -hmm. they're learning how to speak, you know, you can figure out language from the little sounds that kids are making. Can you do the same thing with chicks? And then the other thing I thought was that was very interesting is you say here that whether chicks are hatched by their mother or in an incubator, the chick language is universal. This is just how they talk to one another. Tell us a little bit about these different sounds, this vocabulary primer, and learning to understand chickens through chick behavior. Right. I mean, I think it's it's the same type of language that comes out when we birth our own human babies. We cry for pain. We express uh, pleasure. Uh, We express when we're uncomfortable, when we need our diapers changed and things of that nature, when when we're hungry and things like that. And it's very, very basic. And the chicks are no different. They make a little purr sound called a pleasure trill. Uh, mostly when they're falling asleep or they're content and their bellies are full and they feel so nice and warm under that heat lamp. It's like a, like a um, purring happy cat, really. And that's how it started. We cut a hole in the front of the brooder, the little box where the chicks live for the first six weeks of their life. And it was like television. And we took a blanket um, that we would bring to the beach. And there we would. We would. We were fascinated. We would watch those little baby day-old chicks as they grow so quickly like it was television, and it was so much fun to watch them. They were silly. They were curious. They were serious. Uh, they would have little uh, squabbles or squawks or things over, found little piece of nothing. Um, <laughs> but it was just so fun to watch them interact. And, I mean, I can't tell you. Every time we get baby chicks, we spend hours there. And my, you know, my friends joke, they're like, are you out in the garage again? Yes, come on over. We've got baby chicks. And so it's just really, really fun. But, you know, they they have little casual conversations as they're doing. They get excited. And uh, they have distress beats when something's just not quite right. So, yeah. You have these pages where you're actually explaining chicken language and you're mm-hmm. trying to spell the sounds that they I make. Know. I know. 
And I, I, know. <laughs> I loved this part. You know, there's this song out now. It's a meme and my kids are going crazy for it. And it's called Mon's Not Hot. And, and it's kind of a rap song. And in the middle of the song are all of these crazy sounds and the kids can do it. I'm trying to learn it just to annoy them. But as I was <laughs> looking through the chicken language, I'm like, it's badup and scree oop oop. And <laughs> there's yep. all these different sounds, but they mean different things yeah. and you're translating them for us. Can you walk us through some of them? I oh, do that sure. for us. Sure. Well, so um, the easiest one, and this is probably the most common one that every uh, chicken person will recognize, um, is the greeting. And this is its so funny because I've had some people message me and email me that they took the book right out to the coop and they started using it and <laughs> trying to figure out what their chickens were saying. And <laughs> one of the gals, I think she was surprised. She, she uh, messaged me and, and her last line of her email was, so, S-O, with capitalized <laughs> locks on, you know, cap locks on, uh, it so works. And I thought, well, of course it works. <laughs> it's universal. <laughs> but the light bulbs are going on over people's heads because they're finally getting it. And nothing warms the heart for me more than like, yes, they get it. They're getting it and they're able to do this. And so the greeting is the first sound. And it goes like this, <laughs> just, <laughs> and you'll hear them use this um, throughout the day. They say it to you. They say it to one another. It's just kind of, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Okay. You want to try it, Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to try it. Okay, you ready? So in in the book, you have this be, it looks like, ba-dash-dup. Dup. Dup. <laughs> this is one of the right? hardest things. I, I, I said this story. I said, wouldn't this be, make a great audiobook? <laughs> this is fantastic. If you do an audiobook, I'm definitely on board. I'll help you in any way I can. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be fun. This is fantastic. Um, Did I do yeah. it right? Did I do it right? Ba-doop. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. And I encourage you, if you ever are out and about, even if you're not a chicken keeper, um, to try these chicken greetings with other chickens because they will look at you and they'll look at you as a dog would almost, you know, that cockeyed glance, like they'll tilt their head trying to understand you and the chickens will do the same. Okay. They will understand it. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Well, you um, have, um, I mean, you have terms for alert, yeah. egg on the way, warning, mm-hmm. and then you even have good night. How does good night sound? Um, so chickens say good night. It's just a really soft, um, airy sound that it's almost like a little under their breath. Um, and you're essentially doing a roll call to make sure that everybody's there and everybody's okay. Uh, and it goes. I love that. <laughs> Oh my goodness, this is fantastic. And so that's, that's the, you'll hear that sound at night then. Yes, yes. And I have it on my um, website as well. I've actually gone out in the chicken coop and recorded it. So trying to record a lot of these things, I also put 
I think I put on my Facebook page, um, I went to a poultry show and had a whole conversation with a prize-winning rooster I'd never met. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So if you if you are out in the chicken coop and it's nighttime, do you say that to them and then they respond back or how does that work for you? Yeah, well, um, you know, you've got, you can go into the chicken coop and if it's, well, they won't move around because it's pitch black and they can't see in the pitch black or the darkness very well. And so I just stand there and I listen. There are little clucks and coos that are coming from the side over in the roosts where they sleep. And usually I'll join in just to see if they answer me back. And they do. <laughs> so fantastic. kind of a little nighttime ritual now with them that they know that I'm going to come and lock them up to keep them safe from any nighttime predators. And that's my way of saying good night. I love it. And then section two of your book is how to behave in the hen house. Mm-hmm. Is this a sociology piece that came into play for you? Yeah, you know, um, it's very, very interesting, uh, you know, studying cultures from around the world. Gosh, you know, over 20 years ago, it really isn't any different. And even uh, a lot of the, the sociological research that came about from this was done um, in the early 1900s. So it's kind of interesting that people were interested in this even way back then um, in trying to wrap their, their heads around it. And one of the things that I found so fascinating was that one of the first researchers to describe the pecking order, which is a hierarchy within the flock, was first observed as a as a boy who spent time with chickens, um, who later went on to do his PhD work on the uh, hierarchy of the pecking order. Hmm. Fascinating. You say that there are key positions within the flock. Mm-hmm. You've got the yeah. rooster, the head hen, the sentinel, and then mm-hmm. you have the bottom of the order. Walk us through each of those and then talk to us a little bit about how humans can find their way into that pecking order. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I think that, um, you know, first and foremost is is the rooster. He's not really part of the pecking order. The pecking order only exists with the hens. So he's outside of that. But essentially, he has a few jobs. He is uh, the chief protector, so he's always on duty looking out for any type of potential threats. Uh, and he keeps the hens in line. He breaks up any little squabbles or disputes that they might have. And you really want to have one rooster to at least 7 to 12 hens if you're keeping a flock of chickens. And that's because roosters will have favorite girls, <laughs> And certainly, um, they're very affectionate, and you want to make sure that some of the girls get a break now and then from his um, love interests. <laughs> so, but but they're they're quite amazing on their own. I think everybody has a rooster story um, growing up. Um, and then, you know, when you look at the pecking order, the the hierarchy of the the hens, you you know, the most obvious one is usually the head hen, and if you observe them long enough, you can kind of figure out who she is. And it's not always that uh, she's the, the you know, biggest. She just happens to be most likely the smartest. She has a higher level of intelligence than the rest of them. Probably the healthiest and, and strongest from the standpoint of from when they were, you know, in the, in the brooder as well. 
and the, the pecking order starts very, very young. Within a few weeks in that brooder with the chicks, the pecking order will be sorted out, and it'll, it'll stay that way as long as there's no disruption to it. But she also keeps the order, and she's the one who determines, like, where they're going to go, where they're going to explore. Uh, she's the one who will explore new foods. Sometimes she'll um, be able to uh, try the new foods first, most likely. Um, she'll share things with her flock, and then she will basically be the leader, the president <laughs> of the okay. organization, I guess. You could, you could think of her that way. And so then you would look at the next one would be the sentinel. So there's usually always a sentinel, especially notice if the rooster's not there. And this is a hen who just stands watch most of the time, surveying the scenes, um, looking out for predators or anything that could appear as a threat, a person, a stray dog, anything that she might need to alert the flock that there's an intruder or somebody who doesn't look like they belong in that area. Where the sentinel is in the flock, somewhere usually in the middle, is kind of out in the pecking order, but it also has a place in within the hierarchy. And the sentinel can sometimes switch off. My sentinel has just switched off outside. One of the older hens had relinquished being the sentinel. So there's a younger sentinel now, and it's kind of like sentinel in training <laughs> because there's two of them perched up doing the job, and I'm slowly watching the older hen be okay with letting her get to the lookout first. Um, and the lookout's usually elevated. Um, so that's kind of neat to see. Like I said, the pecking order can change. And a lot of times it'll change with age, too. And then, of course, there's somebody always at the bottom, kind of that way in life, too, you know, whether it's fair or not. That bird is usually uh, weaker, sometimes different, a different breed or a single breed. Um, just like dogs and cats, there's different breeds of chickens. And sometimes uh, they just don't care about being within the pecking order. Silky bantams are one breed that, that are never that dominant or aggressive in the sense of asserting uh, authority or position. So they tend to just fall into the lower ranks. Um, that being said, my oldest chicken right now is a silky bantam. Um, her name is Fifi. She's a little black fluff ball. Mm. And she, being the oldest, should be at the bottom of the order, but she's not, really. Um, she's close to the bottom, but they others respect her and revere her. So it's almost like she's the grandma, <laughs> if that makes any sense to you. Um, they, if she was at the bottom of the pecking order, she wouldn't be, um, eating before others. She wouldn't, um, be allowed to access goodies and things first that I put in. She wouldn't have first dibs on things. And so she has no problem. Um, when she wants to assert herself, she'll assert herself and she'll be able to, you know, muscle her way in for a tiny little thing. It's interesting. There's this level of respect that comes for the older chickens that are allowed to live out their lives naturally. They may not lay eggs anymore, but they certainly still are part of that order. So, mm. Yeah. 
That's well, a little bit about pecking order, I guess. Yeah, it's a great lead in to the next section of your book, which is called What Makes a Chicken Tick? And mm-hmm. there are a lot of interesting facts about chickens that you discuss here. I thought it'd be mm-hmm. fun to, I'll just throw a few out and then have you just say the first thing that comes to your mind when I throw out some of these oh, amazing <laughs> true facts. If you have the the stories <laughs> about your own flock that you can add as testament to some of these true okay. facts, that will be fun. Okay, so here we go. You say, it's hard to outrun a chicken. They can go as fast as nine miles per hour. Yeah. Yeah, don't ever try and catch a chicken. You'll end up on YouTube in a horrible video. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I, I tried to do it one time, and I'm sure my neighbors were like, what is that woman doing (laughs) running around her yard? Um, And, of course, you know, I was late to get the kids from school, and they all were out running around and doing chicken things and... You know, I mean, like a mother hen, you know, here I am thinking, oh, I got to get them back into the run. I don't want anything to happen to them. And (laughs) I came back and then I just waited till dusk. And then they naturally, I just kept the door open and they all, they naturally went back into the coop and run. That's what they do. So yeah, don't try to outrun a chicken. (laughs) Okay. Here's one. They can't see in the dark. They really can't. No, no. That's why you can go into a chicken coop and take them right off the roots and they they won't know you know they'll they'll know that you're moving them but they won't really fight you or wobble because they can't see you know they don't sweat nope they don't they don't sweat um they have one sweat gland but they actually regulate their body temperature um through that uh, red fleshy part on the combs and the wattles which most people would recognize on the top of their head or dangling underneath of where their chin would be. And that's how they regulate their body temperature. So chickens that live in cold areas have smaller combs and wattles, and that's uh, to prevent frostbite. And they, if you live in a cooler, um, more milder temperatures, you don't have to be uh, getting rid of heat as much as you would, say, a chicken that lives in the southern part of the U.S. or even South America where those combs and waddles are much larger so that they can cool off the blood flow with the natural air because, you know, chickens are are very warm. They're very hot-blooded. So certainly, you know, they're going to have to cool their blood and they cool it down by running the blood through those organs. Interesting. Yeah. Now you say they may not have teeth, but their barbed tongues catch food and they also have few taste buds and can't taste sweetness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't. Um, they don't really. They don't really have the ability to decipher taste whether things taste good or bad. Um, they're not like connoisseurs, and they don't have sophisticated palates like we do. And the interesting thing about the teeth that some of your uh, listeners might find fascinating is that. Chickens a long time ago, you know, they're closely related to a T-Rex. That is the closest relative. They have prehistoric relative. And chickens actually in their genetics have a recessive gene. So recessive genes are genes that are not expressed. So we don't see them, but they still maintain the know-how and the knowledge. This gene is, think of it as being dormant for explanation purposes. Of course, I'm simplifying it. And if there's any scientists out there, um, forgive me for my, my simplification. But essentially, that gene is dormant. And scientists have actually been able to turn that dormant gene back on in the lab, and they've hatched out 
chicks with teeth. <laughs> oh, <laughs> kind that of scary. is freaky. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, at any given time, you know, there could be some genetic, um, you know, it's a chance when they think they may need teeth again, and they could grow them back. So, yeah, kind of okay. fascinating. That is fascinating. The other one that I loved, this is the last one, is mm-hmm. you say, you can tell what color egg a hen will lay by looking at the color of her earlobe, which is kind yeah. of by that waddle. And you say, red earlobes usually mean brown eggs. White earlobes mean white eggs. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Some interesting stuff, uh, definitely. And most people are like, I didn't know chickens had ears. Well, they don't have ears like us, um, but they do have a small little hole in both the sides of their head where where you would think chicken ears would be located. And they're covered with little fluffy a tuft of feathers. And you just look at the earlobe, which is the fleshy part that's right behind, mm, I guess the best way to describe it is where we would have an earlobe behind the eye. And uh, sometimes it has a little bit of a fold to it. A little bit of it is pronounced. Some of it's even hidden under feathers. But if you pull it back and you look at the color, you you might be able to determine what color eggs that breed will lay. Hmm. Well, section four says, hey, I'm no bird brain. And this is the section where you start talking about how smart they really are. Yeah, this is the dense part of the book. And this is the part that was so hard for me to cut down and also to keep simple um, because it's I wanted to just write more and write more and write more yeah. <laughs> where there's only so much space in here. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit, maybe highlight some of the key findings or some of your key insights to chickens. They're a lot smarter than we give them credit for or than I think maybe the general public recognizes. You have Mm -hmm. um, a couple of pages where you talk about examples of pretty amazing problem solving and decision making. Mm -hmm. That, Mm -hmm. That was fascinating. That's on page 116 and 17. There were just a lot of great examples here. Do you want to walk us through a few maybe? Sure. I mean, you know, it's with any any time you you watch animals, they have to solve problems. Everybody has problems. It's not just us. <laughs> and everybody has to, to make choices. And it's not again, it's it's not just us as a as a species. And uh chickens and animals and creatures that live in the ocean are, are no different. One of my favorite things was that a friend was telling me that she had a a garden and she didn't want her chickens to get into it. So she put a fence around it. And then um, chickens can't fly very high. They can do maybe 20-foot spurts and maybe only go about four to six feet if they really wanted to. They kind of do this long hop of a flight. So she rigged up a fence and then... You can, chickens have flight feathers on their wings, and if you, it doesn't hurt them, but if you trim those flight feathers, then they, they won't fly. They lose that ability. And she did just that. But, you know, every day when she would let her chickens out in the morning, it, it didn't fail. Somehow they were ending up by the afternoon in that garden. 
and there were no holes. Uh, there was no uh, gaps in the, the fencing. It, the fencing was close enough that there wasn't any way they could sneak in and couldn't figure it out. And eventually what she realized was because it was a, um, a chicken wire fence, a temporary fence. She didn't want anything that would be there permanently because certainly when the garden had nothing growing in it, the chickens could go in there because they leave free fertilizer and they till the soil and they're they're really beneficial. And it wasn't until uh, she actually took the time to sit there and watch them for a while that she realized that teamwork really saved the day. And it was one hen would, would um, hop up onto the fence and it sagged a little bit down almost to the point where another hen hopped on and it went from a 90 degree angle with the ground to being flat. Um, and then the it would pop up and the chickens were in there <laughs> and then she'd go in and chase them out. <laughs> but it's just that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, you know, I have other people who tell me that the chickens also um, come up to their back door and knock on it to say, Hey, I need you. <laughs> and there's something wrong. Um, and they go out to investigate and they find, okay, there was a predator that came through or they needed food or they needed new water or you know, one of the hens was in trouble or was stranded or missing or lost. So I think that that's pretty neat. Sometimes the flock will even come in to the house and like to explore. I have another friend that told me that the chicken was went in to the house to eat the dog food because mm. <laughs> they knew that the bowl was by the door and, and that <laughs> kind of thing. And then sometimes even uh, flocks know that uh, kids are ready to get off the bus. And when the kids get off the bus, that means treats. So the chickens go greet them and then get a reward for that. So very, very smart. Very, very smart. Yeah. You're learning about how they interact with each other, but they're also learning about how you interact with them. They're studying yeah. you a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I know they talk about me. Um, <laughs> and I know that because they've given me a chicken name and I tell the story of how I was named by the flock. But, you know, it's almost like I can hear them talking about me because I'll hear them just chatting, you know, chickeny things. And then all of a sudden I hear my name and then a string of other chicken words. And I'm thinking, what are you saying about me? <laughs> now, what's your name? What does that sound like in chicken? Well, my chicken name is, um, and I only learned this because, um, and I talk about it in the book, but um, I learned about it after speaking with a friend who, who has spent her life um, trying to figure out uh, why and how animals communicate. But my chicken name is... <laughs> it sounds like a little trumpet, uh -huh. trumpet welcome. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the lady with the goodies. <laughs> so do they say this when you're around or, or how do you do yeah. how did you discover this? Oh gosh. Well, you know, I as I was kind of doing a just research even before writing this book, I was trying to decode them and figure out what different things would, would mean and um I would hear that interspersed with things, and I really didn't know what the heck that meant. And so, gosh, I was, I got an award for the first book, and I had the opportunity to meet Cy Montgomery, the woman who I was talking about. 
earlier. And she, you know, sat down with me um, at this, this banquet. We bonded over chickens because she has a flock of her own. And we realized that this vocalization that I couldn't quite figure out what they were saying was most likely possibly my name. And so I went, I came home with this excitement to get back into the chicken coop and observe them as if this vocalization was associated with me. And that's how I found out that, yeah, that's my name. Because they will sometimes, uh, like if I'm in the coop, some of them will run in in the morning to see me and what I'm doing. And instead of that, they'll they'll say my name. And it's almost like, hey, Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, you know, when I'm bringing them treats or I'm going to come out or they see me outside with the dog, I can hear them you know, saying like, are you coming here? Come on, let us out or give us a treat. Or when I'm walking over to them in the morning, they know I'm coming. And then, you know, I'll hear the chicken chatter just in in sheer anticipation that I'm going to come out and let them out. And yeah, then I'll hear them say my name. Someone will say my name. And the beauty of it is that uh, I think that I know who gave me my name. It was my first hen, Tilly, who was incredibly talkative. And she named me. And we're in our third generation of chickens now. We're with our third flock. And my name has transcended through all of the flock. And for me, that's really special. Um, And so that leads me to wonder, um, what have they named one another? So... You know, if they have a name for me, they must have names for one another. And so, um, you know, trying to decipher some of that and figure it out. And maybe I'll know, maybe I'll never know. Hmm. Um, but certainly it's fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. You've got a little bit of chicken oral history going on there if they've mm-hmm. passed your name on mm-hmm. through the generations. Yeah, because we know that dolphins in captivity have names for one another. Hmm. So I do think that, you know, chickens are no different. Wow. Well, this last section is called, How Do You Feel? And it's the emotional life of chickens. And you say that you saved this section of the book for last. It's the nearest and dearest to your heart. I love your introductory paragraph. Could you read that for us and then share a little bit of your thoughts on this section of the book, the emotional life of chickens? Sure. Okay. When we got our first backyard flock in 2010, it was a complete leap of faith for me and my family. We had never kept chickens and had no idea what was in store. Some people want chickens mainly for the eggs. We welcomed the eggs, but we were more interested in the chickens as pets and in the life lessons they could teach us. It didn't take long for us to discover how wonderful keeping a flock could be. Perhaps what intrigued me the most was coming to realize that chickens have emotions, just like dogs and cats. I'm embarrassed to admit it, that I was somewhat astounded. Yeah, you know, I think for me, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I thought that chickens didn't have emotions. Uh, why would they? And, um, yeah, this was really eye-opening. And I think this is the thing that... that um, imprinted the most for me in my heart was that why wouldn't they? And I think that what really kind of first made me aware of this was when I would just 
be in different backyard chicken forums on different pages and social media, sometimes the chickens end up with medical conditions where they need to have um, procedures performed on them. And um, people were doing these procedures on their backyard chickens at the kitchen table without any type of pain relievers. And I thought to myself, it started with me realizing they feel pain. How can you be doing that? You know, it'd be like cutting into you. They, they experience pain. And I think I thought to myself, well, now I need to do something about that because I don't want people not doing things without compassion and caring and, 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 you know, respect. I mean, I think that people were told that, well, if they don't have emotions, they mustn't have pain. And if they mustn't have pain, they mustn't feel and they mustn't, you know, experience these things, but, but they do. Um, and so that was like, for me, the ability to say, okay, I know that your chicken has a problem, but how can we as a community come together to find resources for you to be able to get your chicken cared for and what it needed? And how else can, is there any other way to do things without pain or without causing any, any sort of distress? Um, and that's kind of where you know, things opened up for me with the emotions. And, you know, that was like, well, yeah, chickens do love one another and they can have um, lifelong friendships. They have compassion um, for one another um, and they care and they, they have this sort of this deep understanding sometimes of what people are going through. They get excited about things and, and uh, you know, we love them and, and they love us. Mm. You say that chickens seem to know when you're feeling down or depressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I don't, I don't know how or why, but I know that from having a dog all my life. Um, yeah, they know, and there's just this, um, just this sense. And I don't know if they're they're reading our body language, um, whether they're taking visual cues. I don't know. I don't know how animals know what we're going through, but I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating that, you know, and, and we're not, we're, I'm not a chicken, but I can understand them. I can relate to them. And I think people can relate to dogs and cats and, and other things. And we're not of those species, but, but we can still try and understand them. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. You end your book here with this very touching tribute to Tilly and your website uh, is Tilly's Nest as well in, in Tilly's yeah. honor. I know she was very special to you, but I'm wondering if you could read this amazing little tribute that you wrote about Tilly. It's called Saying Goodbye to Tilly. Oh, sure. I'll try to do it without crying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to do it without that, crying too. I'm going to listen to you. love that little hen. Um, yeah. Okay. Saying goodbye to Tilly. I knew Tilly's final day was coming. She had been slowing down, not herself, but not overtly sick. One evening, she opted for a pile of clean shavings on the ground instead of roosting. I knew the end was close. She held on till morning. I'm convinced that she waited for me to say goodbye. I scooped her into my arms. She was almost lifeless, but slowly opened her eyes. I held her, 
loved on her, and spoke to her in the gentlest of words. Mostly I thanked her. Thanked her for being such a wonderful hen. She taught us about love, friendship, the importance of rules, patience, and kindness to be lighthearted and to laugh at ourselves. When I buried her under a beautiful hosta, I placed a small bouquet picked from her favorite spots in my garden on her feathered wing, still warm from the sun. She had always loved sunbathing. I took a feather and tucked it close to my heart. I was numb. She was gone. There are more than these little bits of her than in my heart. She is in my garden, my children's memories, and mine, too. I can still hear her voice when I close my eyes. Tilly changed me forever. To this spunky little hen, I will be forever grateful. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, you know, I think the biggest thing and the biggest gift we can give to one another is love. And I think that that's what matters in the end. You know, filling our lives with people and uh, animals and experiences and trying to experience life for, for what it was meant to experience is so important. Hmm. Well, and you say, too, that, that chickens go through mourning when they experience loss in the flock as well. Yeah. Yes. And that's another thing that a lot of people have emailed me about. They didn't understand that when a chicken passes away, there is this this thing that they need to go through. Um, it's their process of mourning. And the hens do say goodbye to one another. Um, and the process is, is, is quite beautiful. Um, and it's almost at being at like a chicken's wake, <laughs> so to speak, um, for lack of better terminology. And sometimes it happens when they're alive and sometimes it happens when they have passed. I had a gentleman um, email me last week and he said, you know, he said, I didn't, I didn't realize this and, and, and felt very, very badly that his chicken had, had died and he just disposed of her. And he said, you know, the next time this happens, I, I need to make sure that I make sure that they've had the ability to, to mourn her um, because he had separated her out because she was ill. And, and then I had another person, they wanted to make sure that their flock was able to mourn. So they took the deceased chicken and put it in a wire cage and the other chickens kind of came over and spoke to it, but just to make sure that it was gone. So I guess it makes me feel good in a way that, yeah, I'm not a crazy chicken lady. And it makes me feel good knowing that I can help people try and understand their, their, their flock even better. And gosh, by no means am I, am I an expert, but I just mostly want this book to kind of open up the conversation between fellow chicken keepers and how people look at animals in the world. Melissa Coffey, chicken translator, uh, lover of chickens. I have to say, <laughs> I, I know that people are going to have tons of questions. Your book is called How to Speak Chicken. People can find you online. Tell us how they can get a hold of you. Where can they find you on social media and, of course, your website? Sure. Well, the website is called um, Tilly's Nest. And it's T-I-L-L-Y apostrophe S, nest, like a bird's nest. 
So that's where my website is. That's where I tend to hang out the most. But you can also find me on social media under Tilly's Nest. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram is usually where I hang out the most. And, you know, feel free to email me your questions, say hello. If you want to connect um, with raising chickens or getting started or, you know, that kind of thing, let me know and I'll, I'll do my best to try and get you started or connect you with some local groups or things. I'm a one-woman show, so <laughs> I try and um, do um, get back to everybody who reaches out. Well, Melissa, Cy Montgomery, the author of The Soul of an Octopus, said this about your book. Yeah. Prepare to be surprised, delighted, and humbled. And I couldn't agree more. This has just been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Jennifer, this was really fun to be able to chat today. Thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. You've been so sweet to me. (laughs) Well, my pleasure. This has been a joy. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) All right. Well, you have a great day. All right. Thanks so much, Melissa. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for our show today featuring Melissa Coffey and her fascinating new book called How to Speak Chicken. I hope today's show helped you expand your understanding and preconceptions about chickens. And if you're responsible for a flock, I'm hoping today's topic has you running out to your coop to connect with your chickens. See if you can't make some language discoveries of your own. Just a reminder that the show notes for this episode with the links Melissa shared on the show today will be under the Still Growing Podcast page on my website over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. I'm so thankful to my team at Podfly Productions, my editor and project manager, Eric Begay, and my copywriter, Ein Kadena. I'd also like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm, and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she appeared back in episode 553, where we talked all about incorporating more native plants into your garden. For my sign-off today, I leave you with this thought to help you grow. Take inspiration from Melissa Coffey and imagine what the creatures in your garden are telling you. Hmm. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.